How are the Abraham Accords going? How should the U.S. be dealing with Iran? Is U.N. Human Rights Council membership serving U.S. interests? Can the United States deter China, Russia, and Iran all at the same time? And do we have the defense budget we need to make it happen? We'll ask those questions and many more to our special guest this week, U.S. Senator James Langford of Oklahoma, co-chair of the bipartisan Senate Abraham Accords Caucus, and recently returned from a trip around the Middle East. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, we have bantered enough for a few weeks' time, I think. Uh, let's get to our very special guest. No need to keep him waiting. James Lankford served four years in the U.S. House of Representatives for Central Oklahoma until being elected to the U.S. Senate in that 2014 special and then re-elected in 2016 and again in 2022. Before serving in Congress, Senator Lankford spent 15 years as a director of student ministry for the Baptist Convention of Oklahoma and director of the Falls Creek Youth Camp, the largest youth camp in the United States. He lives in Oklahoma City with his wife, Cindy. They've been married more than 30 years, have two daughters. Senator Lankford serves on the Senate Committees on Finance, Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, Energy and Natural Resources, and Indian Affairs. Senator Lankford, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be able to be in the conversation. It's great to have you here. Obviously, the co-chair of the Senate Abraham Accords Caucus uh, with Senator Jackie Rosen. Give our listeners some quick background on the caucus, why you started it, what your objectives are for it over the months and years ahead. So the, the caucus itself was obviously birthed out of the Abraham Accords Agreement that happened you know, three, almost three years ago now. Uh, the formation of that agreement was so historic. The concern was, is that once it transitioned presidency, it was a new State Department leadership, new White House on it. The concern was, would this current White House pick it up? Would the State Department keep going? Or would they say, eh, it was a Trump project? It really wasn't designed to be the Trump Accords. Uh, it was an agreement made that was between Arab nations and between Israel to be able to start an ongoing normalization. So it really was birthed out of, we need to keep this momentum going in the region. The Abraham Accords were built with those with three nations initially, then it kept expanding as Sudan and Morocco, but it was designed to keep going, to keep expanding. And so we wanted to basically put our foot on the gas to say this is a formula for normalization in the region, for interacting with business relationships, with commerce, with energy, with water issues, with common issues just among people on it and to get people talking to each other. So we formed the caucus, Jackie Rosen and I formed the caucus and started expanding it out to other members and said, now let's be practical. What can we do to keep this momentum going? And Senator, uh, I wanna ask you about the, the first caucus, CODEL, but before I do, how do you think the State Department is doing and the Biden administration is doing in terms of continuing or not continuing on uh, the Abraham Accords and working with them or, or have they done just like you said could happen and sort of just pushed it to the side of the Trump project? So I, I don't think they would admit it. So don't don't ask them to be able to correct this one way or the other. Okay. But I think for the first six months of the new State Department, they were kicking around. What, what, what are we going to do with this? Uh, is this something we want to be able to maintain or not? But they have moved past that now and they fully embrace it. Uh, they've looked at it for what it is. 
this is a moment in history that quite frankly, our grandchildren will still be talking about if we can keep this going. Uh, so th they, they fully embrace it now. We're, they're very involved in what's called the Negev Forum. Uh, that's the nations getting together. The United States is at the table there to be able to have that serious conversation, water, education, uh, energy, uh, cultural exchanges, commerce. Uh, they're, they're, they're having the practical conversations of what do we need to do? How does this affect these nations? How does it affect, quite frankly, the Palestinians as well and their benefit where they've got multiple nations being strategic uh, in this process? That's a beneficial thing, and the State Department is fully ensconced at the table on it. That's good. So, Senator, and, and so, like I just alluded to, you just came back from uh, a couple weeks ago from your first caucus, CODEL, to the Abraham Accords countries. Did you hear different messages depending upon where you were, or were you hearing the same thing from both the Israelis and the Arab participants in the accord? Yeah, so yeah, it, it's unique in every place. I mean, we started in Morocco. Uh, we went Morocco, Bahrain, uh, UAE, and then Israel was kind of the order that we took it in. The issues are different in Morocco than they are in the UAE, obviously, uh, or in Bahrain. Uh, issues are different even between Bahrain and UAE uh, and, and the things they're dealing with just based on population and their economy. But there were some common threads that we heard. Every single place we went, they talked about the threat of Iran, period. Every place we went, they said, this is a very serious issue. Uh, Iran is on the move. They're continuing to advance their terrorism. They intend to be able to dominate the region on it, and we're feeling it. <clears throat> Every place that we went was very affirming of the Abraham Accords and said, this is a good model. We like it. We're also trying to convince our people to be fully on board with it. But the leaders look at it and say, this is the future of our nation, the future of our economy. Uh, we want to do more integration, not less integration. Uh, and then the third aspect of it was everybody was talking about not only what they can do to benefit from the Abraham Accords, but who's the next nation, who, who's next that, that's coming on this. And so there were those common themes on it. You know, there's more travel happening in Morocco and UAE than there is in Bahrain uh, right now. Uh, the Bahrainis are interested in more people coming and more uh, business integration on that. And that is coming. Uh, there are not as many uh, Moroccans and Bahrainians and Emiratis that are flying to Israel as there are from Israel to those countries. And so there's some tourism things that are going to have to develop in the future on that that can be developed. But there is real investment dollars that are coming. And quite frankly, people are being innovative. They're talking about uh, the, the water issue. When you live in a desert, it doesn't matter if you live in the desert in the Negev, in the Negev or you're living in the desert uh, in uh outskirts of Morocco or, or in UAE or whatever it may be, you're going to deal with water, desalinization, energy issues. Uh, how do we actually do this? So there's, a, there's common ground to be able to work through, and they're actually sitting down working on it. And Senator, you just alluded to it. Who's next? Uh, the, uh, a big question. I'm curious what, what you were hearing. Obviously, we've heard from Benjamin Netanyahu. He's very focused on Saudi Arabia. That's you know been talked about now since the Abraham Accords, um, still elusive, but maybe in the offing. Who else is out there? You know, what are your views on the, the chances we'll see Saudi or, or somebody else soon? Yeah, yeah, we're we're shooting for California to be the next entity to come into the agreement, but <laughs> that, that's a whole different that's a whole different issue. Uh, the, the Saudis are the, obviously the big Kahuna in this. Uh, the, the, the Saudis would be incredibly important. There's already some conversations that are going. People may not know it, and for some people, it may not be a big deal. But you can take direct flights from the UAE to Tel Aviv now flying straight over Saudi Arabia. That was not allowed three years ago. And so th there's already some of that engagement. There's already naval engagement uh, where they're, they're doing military exercises together uh, for common defense issues and uh, working on communication between nations. 
there's a lot that has occurred just in the last few years with Saudi Arabia, where Saudi Arabia is, you know, acknowledging Israel in that. And, and quite frankly, it's interesting, even the maritime agreement that just happened with Lebanon in that maritime agreement, again, people not in the region may not know that's a big deal, but 30 different times in that maritime document, uh, Lebanon signs an agreement acknowledging Israel's right to exist. Again, four years ago, that would have never happened. I mean, for decades and decades, the official position is, no, there is no Israel. Now they're signing a maritime agreement with Israel. So there are some historic things that are happening in the region that I think are a big deal. As I mentioned, Saudi Arabia, I think they're kind of inching towards that normalization with the potential that it's out there in the near term of making some really big jumps. There are multiple other countries that are just not at liberty to be able to name that are also looking at it to be able to say, hey, this worked for Morocco. Uh, this could work for us as well. This worked for Bahrain. This could work for us as well. Uh, and I think there are also some leaders that are saying, hey, why, why aren't we doing business relationships with Israel? This is foolish. Uh, they have incredible technology. They have incredible innovation. They have some tech solutions uh, that we'd really have to be connected to. They're solving the water issues. Uh, um, Mark uh, Kelly uh, who, who, he was on the trip with us, Senator Mark Kelly uh, from Arizona. Everybody in the region when we traveled knew him, not as Senator Kelly, but astronaut Kelly. Uh, and, he, and he several times had mentioned when we were in Israel, you know, he flew over Israel almost 900 times while he's circumnavigating the earth, uh, flying over it, looking down. He said Israel is one of the very few places on earth you can actually see a physical border from space because you can see where they're irrigating land and where they're not irrigating land. Israel is unlocking the issue of water and that whole region desperately needs that technology. And there are other leaders in the area that are saying we need what they're doing for our own people. And Senator, you touched on this common thread you were hearing on, on your trip about Iran and the Iran threat. Uh, I want to get into that. I know you have some new legislation out that we want to discuss as well. One of the things that struck me is you talked about how you, you visited with some local Oklahomans uh, serving over in Aldafra in the UAE while you were there which is, by the way, awesome. Uh, I remember working for Senator Kirk, and whenever we would travel, we would try to find Illinois folks, and it's, it's a wonderful yeah. thing when you're abroad and you, you find your home state folks serving. But it obviously reminds us that we have military presence in the Middle East. We have a force posture that's very important. And at the same time, we have this tension with the preparation for deterrence, at the very least potential conflict with China, and a, and a big push uh, to put resources investment uh, into the Indo-Pacific realm, with this being a bit of a tension of how do you deter Iran uh, while also preparing for a potential conflict with China? Is it possible, in your view, to walk and chew gum? You know, it, it, Do we need to be choosing between the two theaters right now? Can you deter Iran and deter China? Where do you come down in that in that ongoing debate? Yeah, we're, we're the we're the superpower of the world. Uh, we can absolutely walk and chew gum at the same time. And quite frankly, if we pull ourselves out of the Middle East, we are exposing uh, that whole region to China. If you want to focus more on China, you're not only going to look at the Pacific area, you're going to look at the Middle East and you're going to look at Africa because that's where China is on the move. So it would actually be unwise for us. Uh, I think it's... Um, it was a poor choice of words to talk about a pivot to Asia. Uh, when those first terms came out, we're going to pivot to Asia because that gave the impression we're going to pivot away. Uh, I, I think instead it should have been we've lost enough focus on Asia and we need to make sure that we're also paying attention there rather than implying we're pivoting away from the Middle East towards uh, China and now we're not going to pay attention to the Middle East. I, I think it'd be unwise for the United States 
to pivot away from the Middle East. We've seen enough wars that have occurred there. We've seen the influence that American values can bring to the region and the dialogue. And quite frankly, the number of American businesses that are already there. Uh, when you go through Abu Dhabi or you go through uh, any area in Bahrain, you see American businesses everywhere. We're very engaged in the region. Uh, in addition to that, uh, as I mentioned before, if you're going to focus in on China, you better be focusing in on that region as well, because China is a major customer of all the oil and gas that's coming from that region. And they're actively working to be able to pursue business relationships with everyone in that region to put their surveillance technology there, to be able to put their Huawei uh, telephone systems in all those regions so they can track every phone call in every country. Uh, they're actively on the move to be able to harvest data there and to be able to do security intel in those countries, the same as everywhere else. So we, we should stay engaged. Um, I, I, would, I, I, would, I would also tell you this whole issue about Iran, they're on the move. And I think a lot of people are focused on high altitude balloons from China and other issues with China that are very real. And they're losing track that every week um, Iran is expanding their terrorist footprint in the area. They're destabilizing every country in the region. Uh, what's happening with Hamas and Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad? Uh, what's happening in the in the West Bank at this point uh, in Janine and all these refugee areas where they're seeing violence? That is completely Iran that is funding that, organizing that, and uh, and stoking that violence in the region. Uh, what uh, UAE faces every day when they get up in the morning and look across the Gulf, they're facing a very real threat that just a year ago, most Americans don't know, just a year ago, Iran was launching missiles into the UAE, our allies. Uh, just week after week of launching missiles from Yemen into the UAE. So th th this is not some sort of stale peace that's happening there. This is a heated issue for them that Americans just don't notice. Senator, do you think it's possible to deter Iran, China, and Russia all at the same time with the current defense spending levels? And and I get, I mean, we hear about a push from some in both parties, um, but but you know you've heard House Republicans talk about trying to cut the defense budget. Um, do you think it's possible with the current defense spending uh, to to do all the things we're 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 talking about doing that, and that are important to do? No. I think we are going to have to continue to be able to focus on defense spending. We, we have to be more efficient. Now, let, let me be clear on this. There are areas of inefficiency in the Pentagon budget. No question. Everyone that I know that served in the military can tell you I can point out areas of inefficiency in the military. Uh, the, the leading of those is our procurement acquisition process. Uh, it's just a big, hot mess of complications and bureaucracy that's pushed out a lot of competition. So now we have a lot of monopolies. Uh, in this area. We've got to get more competition. The way you get more competition is make it simpler to actually engage in that process. So there are real areas of reform that we've got to be able to do with the Pentagon, but we've got to be able to work more on hypersonics. Uh, we've got to work on more on missile defense. There, there's some pricey areas that we've got to be better at that we're not there yet uh, that we better be because that's our deterrent level. Uh, we're not we're not actively pursuing war with anybody, uh, but we also want to make sure everyone understands the United States military is the best trained, best equipped, most moral military in the world and don't don't threaten us. Uh, that's the good way for us to be able to maintain the peace. But as you mentioned, China, Iran uh, and Russia are now all connected together, both militarily uh, and their own relationships. There's no alliance really there. China and Russia don't play well together a lot. Uh, and we get that. Uh, but Iran is now a major supplier to kill Ukrainians. 
and uh, we should engage them. In fact, some bills that I've got are adding additional sanctions on Iran because they're actually facilitating the death of Ukrainians right now. And uh, so we need to engage not only our Department of Commerce to limit what we're selling to Iran and be more aggressive on that, but to also make sure our sanctions stay in place, not just for their nuclear ambitions, but also for their facilitating the death of our allies. And just to go a little deeper on that, Senator, I know what we you just referenced your new legislation. We look at the Iran picture right now. You had last year an important motion in the Senate uh, putting senators on record about minimum standards if, if the administration kept going forward on, on some sort of a nuclear deal. Since then, obviously, protests breaking out, the Iran-Russia relationship expanding, terrorist plots foiled on our soil and UK soil elsewhere. In recent days, you have these two bills now dealing with Iran. Tell us about your legislation and maybe also just where do you think Iran policy is going right now, whether from the Biden administration or or in the Senate? Yeah, I want to make sure the Biden administration doesn't take their eye off the ball and what's happening with Iran, because I just think that's a really big mistake. And I think we will regret it long term diplomatically if we do. uh, And quite frankly, economically, if we do as well, as well as just basic human life and dignity. Uh, So part of my mission is to make sure they don't take their eye off the ball on Iran. That's why I continue to be able to raise these things. Last year, I raised this motion. Uh, That was one of those things that in government speak, you're like, okay, it didn't pass. It didn't become a bill. But it was a motion actually to be able to bring up about the Iran nuclear negotiation to saying that they we, we, we can't engage with these negotiations unless we're also dealing with Iranian terrorism at the same time and put some very simple things. What I consider common ground, Republicans and Democrats, both that see the threat could agree to. We put that on the floor. I won that. I think it was a surprise to the administration. In fact, they were actively working against it to say, don't vote for this. But enough Democrats said, no, that's a reasonable thing to be able to put as a boundary. Within a week, the administration then announced they're going to back because I won that. And it was an overwhelming voice in the Senate. Uh, the administration then backed up from the Iran nuclear negotiations with Iran. And then, as you mentioned before, the protests accelerated everything else. The State Department's not reengaged in that. They're, it's all but dead at this point in the Iran nuclear negotiations, not because of what we have done, but because of what Iran has done. So it's important to be able to keep that focus on it. The current bills that I've got, as I mentioned before, is uh, dealing with uh, our export controls to make sure that we are not exporting uh, or not allowing the secondary exports, not normally uh, one of our major American companies. It's somebody that buys from an American company and then ships it over to Iran. We want to make sure we're putting export controls on it so we're not facilitating Iran's weapons program uh, with American technology that's in it. Uh, That's a reasonable thing to be able to do as well as to be able to help add additional uh, firepower to our sanctions dealing with Iran sending all these weapon systems uh, to Russia to be able to attack uh, the y- Ukraine. So there are practical things that we can do that that I feel like I can continue to be able to keep this in front of the administration, in front of people, quite frankly, at home in Oklahoma and across the nation to say we cannot pivot away from this. It's too great of a threat. And, and Senator, one, one quick follow-up. Uh, we did see some reports coming out, uh, NBC News and others, that uh, the U.S. may be passing messages back and forth through Qatar, through the UK, uh, trying to facilitate a hostage exchange or a prisoner exchange, as they call it, uh, but potentially tied to the release of $7 billion of frozen Iranian funds kept in South Korea, sort of returning to the practice of potentially paying for hostages. Obviously, we all want to see US hostages released, uh, but pretty controversial, I I would think, to uh, 
potentially offer billions uh, to this regime at this moment that would obviously be used in the war effort uh, by Russia and Ukraine and and protest crackdown, et cetera. If, if, if we send cash to Iran right now or release any of that cash that actually goes to Iran, the first people it's going to go to is Hezbollah. It's going to go to their weapon systems. It's not going to go to helping people in the street. It's not going to go to helping their economy and build hospitals. They're not building schools to develop world peace uh, with that money. We saw it last time uh, when the Obama administration released the billions of dollars to Iran, immediately terrorist activity started increasing in, in the Gaza Strip. It started, uh, Hamas got a, uh, or Hezbollah, I should say, got a huge infusion of money in Lebanon. Uh, they immediately moved into Syria uh, and were supporting all the uh, Assad movement there. Uh, again, we have clear evidence through history what they will do with additional dollars. Why in the world would we facilitate that? Senator, we've heard from Prime Minister Netanyahu for a while now um, about about Iran and about sort of how we're getting to a crisis point. Um, clearly, his his new cabinet is a group of hawks uh, who who would be more amenable to military action. Do you think we're about to see Israel act more aggressively and more kinetically against Iran, or are we already seeing it? But it's just not the uh, the you know hundreds of bombers in the air that we all expected, but, but it's more drone attacks and cyber and assassination and the stuff where all taken together, it is actually kinetic. It's just not necessarily what, what any, of, uh, any of us thought we would see when we thought about acting against Iran's nuclear program. Yeah, Israel is not interested in starting a large-scale war there, but they've also been extremely clear. Our survival is at risk at every single moment from Iran. And what Netanyahu does is he and his cabinet is they actually take Iran at their word. When they believe they want to be able to wipe Israel off the map, they take them at their word. Uh, and so they're doing what they need to be able to do to be able to protect the people of Israel and, quite frankly, the peace in the Middle East. Uh, so they are engaging in ways that are going to protect them. It's not a large-scale whole series of bombers uh, that are moving, uh, but they've been very clear that Iran cannot set up bases in Syria uh, preparing to be able to attack Israel. That's not going to be allowed, and they have prohibited that at every single turn uh, to be able to do that. They are not going to be allowed to be able to have a nuclear weapon, and they're doing what they can to be able to protect themselves. Now, at the same time, Iran is building Air Force bases and military bases and nuclear facilities inside a mountain uh, because they're trying to be able to find ways to be able to protect their ability to be able to go attack everyone else in the region. Uh, so ev everyone is very attentive to that fact. Uh, but Israel is doing what Israel needs to be able to do. They're not trying to escalate. They're just trying to say, you may not destroy our country. That is not something we're ever going to allow you to do. And Senator, just to switch gears uh, for a second to a few other issues uh, before we get to our lightning round. You've done a lot of work in the past on oversight of the UN Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA. Uh, this is the so-called Refugee Agency for Palestinians. After cutting off all the funds to under the Trump administration, the Biden administration has now provided, I think, by their own account, nearly a billion dollars over two years to UNRWA. What are taxpayers getting for their money right now? Yeah, the Biden administration said they're going to do catch up funds there and they're basically apologizing. I'm so sorry we didn't send you cash to be able to do all this work in the West Bank to be able to then propagandize all these individuals. What we should do in that area is to make sure what is being taught in schools, what is being done in hospitals, uh, as a clear message of, uh, of uh, the United States and our engagement of the world and of some requirement on the Palestinians. Uh, right now, the security breakdown that's happening in the Palestinian areas 
uh, is absolutely devastating. And, and Israel is experiencing terrorism again at a level they've not seen in a very long time with people just walking into a restaurant in Jericho and opening fire uh, and then running back into Palestinian areas and saying that they can hide out here. That, that's not acceptable. And so UNRWA is there for stabilization and security. If that's not actually occurring, then that's a problem. If their curriculum is not have uh, some oversight in it, that's a problem. Uh, for American dollars, we should have real oversight and a real voice into the process. Now, I would tell you, UNRWA schools are better than the other schools in the Palestinian area. So there is this weird balance to say, um, we don't want to just have total anarchy in the area and have a whole group of folks that are uneducated because they are more likely to fall into terrorism. So you've got to look on the horizon, but we should have real oversight. And what I'm not seeing from the Biden administration and what the Trump administration was very clear, we're not getting oversight, so you're not getting money. The Biden administration should stick to that and to say, we'll give assistance where we can have input and have oversight. So, Senator, to follow up on that kind of turn it on its head a little bit. You know, you just mentioned we've seen uh, a significant uptick in Palestinian terror activity since the stopped from the Palestinian Authority. Um, I've always been told that, you know, there's an Israeli solution to Palestinian terror, but the real solution to Palestinian terror is Palestinian institutions, right? Palestinian right. security services and the like. We don't really hear a lot about a two-state solution anymore. We don't hear about it from Israelis. We don't hear about it from Palestinians. What would you, what do you think the next steps are towards stabilization and an event and an eventual? I mean, peace is a strong word to use at this point in time, but uh, end to hostilities. I think would would be you know better than yeah. what we have today. So what do we yeah, do if, step we, one. if we're not engaging? So a, a couple of things here. Uh, business integration makes a big difference. If people are actually doing business together, their families get a chance to know each other. They have an economic gain on both sides. Uh, you, you, you tend to tone the, the volume down. Uh, it's the same kind of conversation happening with Lebanon right now. Le Lebanon's not going to attack Israel if they understand they've got a natural gas field that they're both sharing out in the med and it has great financial benefit for them to have a stable relationship with Israel on it. It is to their benefit as well. It is to the benefit of the Palestinian people to also have peace with Israel and to have stable relationships there. Energy, uh, water, uh, business activities, all those things matter. So the Palestinian Authority, number one, has got to decide who actually leads the Palestinian Authority, who's the leader there, and what's the chain of succession uh, coming out after this, because right now, who does Israel negotiate with uh, to be able to say they can actually speak for the Palestinian people? They've not had elections in years and years and years and years, uh, and there's not broad uh, support for current leadership there. Uh, so they've got to have a leader that they know actually speaks for the people, and they can have the opportunity to be able to sit down and be able to actually negotiate and get things done. There's got to be business cooperation that's happening on both sides of the line, economic cooperation. Uh, there are some areas for the Israelis to be able to be engaged in unique ways there. Uh, there's a big solar farm uh, that the Israelis and the Jordanians are putting together, and they're going to sell some of that solar power uh, to the Palestinians. Well, I, I think they should also work to actually put some of that solar farm uh, in Palestinian areas as well. And so it's not just in Jordan and Palestinian areas. They can have cooperation. Everyone seems to nod their head and say, yeah, that's a good idea. But it's an area where you can have real integration together and terrorist activities in that area know that you have a terrorist activity around those solar farms. Your next door neighbor actually loses power. Uh, so that, that becomes a bigger issue where you're more integrated in that way and there's more dialogue. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's an issue long term 
that the people in the region have got to be able to determine, but it begins with the Palestinians determining, do you want peace or is this going to be the rise of the Islamic Jihad and Hamas and uh, Hezbollah and Lebanon and others? Is, is that what's going to drive all this? Or are we going to actually sit down and actually have a peaceful uh, option for people to be able to coexist next door to each other? Senator, two more uh, uh, policy-oriented questions than our lightning round. Uh, the U.S. has now been a member of the U.N. Human Rights Council for more than a year uh, since uh, the policy had changed from boycotting uh, the Human Rights Council to, to and, try and to win a seat just human rights breaking out around the world because of that. <laughs> well, that's sort of my question, <laughs> which is we, we have this commission of inquiry into Israel, which has not stopped, uh, right. you know, with a standing agenda item on Israel has not been taken off the agenda item. We've lost a big vote against the Chinese on investigating Xinjiang human rights abuses. Some wins. Uh, Russia was suspended in the GA, but I feel like how would, how, how could anybody vote against that at that moment? Uh, a, a little bit of a win on an Iran fact-finding mission uh, just a couple months ago. But it, it does seem like the sort of objectives, the mission statement of going back hasn't been fulfilled in my view at this point. Some say, well, at least we have a seat at the table. Um, what should U.S. policy be on the Human Rights Council and what can the Senate do about it? Yeah, di diplomats will always say we want to be at the table. We want the right to be able to complain and to be able to be there. And so we can storm out and make our protest when we storm out of the room. No one notices that. At the end of the day, our name is attached to some of the worst of the worst. I, I mean, you know, in this conversation, Ar Iran is leading currently the Global Women's Initiative. Okay, well, that's working out great uh, when they're oppressing their own women uh, in their own country right now. And we've got all this rise that's happening there. So in some ways, the, the, that Human Rights Commission is really designed to be able to attack Israel. Uh, we have to make a very deliberate decision. The only way we can really speak to the UN is with our dollars. Uh, that's our most powerful, loudest voice because we we provide so much of the funding there. Uh, when we pull dollars out and we say we're not going to participate in this and we're not going to engage in this if this is what this is, uh, if this is going to be a balanced engagement for actual human rights issues in China and in Iran and in multiple places that are actually the human rights violators, uh, then yes, we're glad to be able to be engaged. Uh, but we should speak loud and we should speak clear in the loudest possible way, and that's with our dollars. Senator, you partnered with a Democrat on, on the Abraham Accords caucus. You talked about uh, Senator Mark Kelly. Um, your trip was bipartisan. And, and it was. We, and we watched the news uh, in Chicago and New York, and we're told bipartisanship is dead in Washington. Uh, Rich and I, we started this podcast to prove those people wrong and to demonstrate that is our own act of patriotism. What's the state of partisanship and or bipartisanship in the Senate today? Yeah, there, there's a lot of bipartisan conversation and, quite frankly, nonpartisan conversation. Uh, I've been a big believer in, I know we've talked a lot about Israel during this conversation. Israel should always be a nonpartisan issue. It needs to be very clear to everyone in the region and to Israel. Uh, this is not a Republican-Democrat thing. We don't have preferences on uh, whether it's Naftali Bennett or whether it's Benjamin Netanyahu. We're going to work with Israel, period, uh, and we're going to be engaged. Uh, so for, for me, the issues come down to let's find the issues where we know we have common ground. Now, we obviously have some pretty big differences on budgets. We have some different issues on abortion. We have some different uh, there, we can find pretty easily around town the areas where we have very strong disagreement and we should express our own opinions and the opinions of our state and the regions that we represent. Uh, but in the areas of common ground, let's find common ground. That, that's the thing about the Senate. You got to be a grown up. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you strongly on one issue, but tomorrow we're going to work on a different issue that we both agree on together. And uh, we got to be able to get that done. That's what grownups do. 
Uh, you find the areas where we can actually make progress. We work together even when we have disagreements. Uh, but I'm not going to be such a jerk uh, with somebody today on an issue we disagree on that I can't work on the issues we do agree on tomorrow. Uh, so th those are just decisions individuals have to make. I do have quite a few relationships across the aisle. Uh, they don't influence me. I'm trying to influence them. That's what I always tell them uh, because I'm, I'm trying to be able to win them over to what's clearly right. And my opinion is clearly the right opinion. <laughs> right. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be able to engage with them in such a way to say, let's, let's actually talk about this. Let's, let's get a common set of facts. Uh, we had a bipartisan delegation uh, that went to the southwest border of the United States. It's been a pretty contentious partisan issue about immigration issues on the southwest border. We had eight of us uh, that went four and four uh, down to the southwest border to be able to look at the same set of facts and to say, OK, let, let, let's not read our own um, uh, bias on this. Let's actually go look at the same set of facts and let's talk about it together. So, yeah, there's there, there's partisanship, uh, but there's also a lot of dialogue that's happening as well. We appreciate that, Senator. Uh, all right. On to the lightning round, which is where things get a little bit interesting here. Um, First question is: Are you trying to say it hasn't been interesting already? <laughs> I don't know where we can. Well, I found it very. I just got to wait out to the very end to get something interesting. <laughs> this is where we. This is where we illuminate you. Do you, you who mm. who who is Senator Langford inside? All right, so Senator, do you have a favorite Hebrew, Yiddish, or Arabic word or phrase? Oh my gosh. Um. <laughs> uh, well, I would. Yes, I do. Actually, it's going to be totally random on this. Uh, it comes from my own Hebrew studies from years ago, but uh, uh, one one uh, the the term lo ruhama uh, was also a child's name, and it was it means no compassion, and it's been kind of a running joke with my wife and I for years and years and years. If I say something sarcastically, she'll look at back at me. She'll go lo ruhama, uh, meaning come on, have a little bit of compassion here uh, as well. But yeah, that's that's a totally random Hebrew phrase on it in our family. Oh, we'll teach great. you the Yiddish version of that, which is Rachmanus. Yeah, right. Hey, Rachmanus. Have, have some Rachmanus. Have, yeah. have some Rachmanus on me. That's <laughs> yeah. A, yeah. So now you know in Yiddish too. That's great. Uh, do you have a favorite place you have visited in any of the Abraham Accords countries? Oh, wow. Um, so it's, it's going to be Israel. Um, I've been to Israel five times. Um, I'll, I'll give you a new favorite place. I was actually able to go this last time there to stop in the Pool of Siloam. And uh, to visit the excavations that are happening there, uh, wow! The city of David, uh, yeah, very cool. Oh my gosh, the city of David and the excavations that are happening there are so incredibly moving to be there to see the excavations, to see them just pulling back history, uh, and to be able to walk through that area uh, is just a remarkable uh, excavation. If you if if anybody gets into Jerusalem ever, uh, there's a million things to be able to see and to be able to do there. But getting to the city of David uh, and the future that people will see, because the Pool of Siloam is not fully open yet. Uh, that's the benefit of being the senator. We got a chance to be able to get a little bit of behind the scenes there. Uh, but in the days ahead for the pilgrims walk from the pool uh, up to the Temple Mount, uh, I encourage everybody to go and see it. All right, Senator. Last one. Do you have a favorite Jewish food? And if you want, if you want, if you want, it would not be matzah. I would just go ahead and tell you that. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, it is, it is, we we don't call it the bread of affliction for nothing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know what? Uh, just some favorite Mediterranean foods. I really like lamb. I really like hummus. Uh, but I I don't know if there'd be a a favorite Jewish food in that uh, in that sense. But we my my wife and I actually really do enjoy Mediterranean food. Period. 
I've always believed that there should be a Senate chullant cook-off, and then well, you'll you, really you know, understand you have, you have a real Ashkenazi ca- Jewish you have the bagel caucus now, right? Uh, there is a bagel uh, caucus. On the House side. There is a bagel caucus. There is a bagel caucus. Yeah, there could there be a Senate a bagel, bagel caucus. caucus. Senator Lankford, thank you so much for your time. Great having you on the podcast. You bet. Glad to be able to visit, guys. Thank, thanks for doing it, and thanks for keeping some bipartisanship and conversation alive. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening. Run, run, run.